Welcome once again to the Irish in Sweden podcast. And if you're listening to this at the moment, it's released. It's seven o'clock on a Monday morning. Uh, I always try to drop these the very, very start of the week. And I always think of Kevin Carl when I'm doing it. Kevin living over on the south side of town there, works as a carpenter, out in his little white van. And I always try to drop these to give him something to listen to when he's maybe driving to his first job of the week or when he's having his first cup of coffee in the morning. Give him that little bit of sprinkling of joy in his life. Then try to bring a sprinkle in your life as well if you're listening to us here. Uh, another packed episode this week. Uh, where in a little while we're going to hear from Dan Hickey. Dan is that fella that's, or, you know, maybe girl if you went to a girl's school, but Dan is that person that you probably really hated at school, right? And not because they weren't a nice person, because he's the best fella you could possibly come across, but because he's brilliant at every sport under the sun, right? It doesn't matter what the lad turns his hand to, he's absolutely brilliant. And uh, just to, to illustrate that, uh, he turned pro as a golfer, as you do. And this is after, you know, starting for the Viking Gales and for the Stockholm Gales uh, in hurling and Gaelic football, respectively, over the years. It was just an absolutely brilliant bloke. So we'll hear from Dan a little bit later on in the episode. But uh, this week, we're going to kick off with a little bit of music. And Brian O'Connor is back. Uh, well, not that Brian ever went away, of course. Brian O'Connor is well known to many of us. You will have seen him play in the Irish bars, the length and breadth of Scandinavia over the years. But you'll often see him playing solo, just him as acoustic guitar and an absolutely endless list of songs uh, both by others and by himself but recently on Facebook I saw that he's involved with a band called Armadillo King and he has strapped on his electric guitar for the first time in many many years and it's absolutely brilliant so uh, here's a little taste of what Armadillo King do this is a track called Ghost Town and after that we'll hear from Brian O'Connor and from Henning from the band about what they're up to. Shopping, at least I think it's me shopping. Is uh, I'm going to call him a veteran of the music business, which is the nicest way I can find to say that he's as old as the hills by now. Brian O'Connor, how are you keeping? Not too bad, Phil. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. It only struck me the other day that one of my earliest memories in Sweden has been in John Higgins' car with you, and you got into his car. We picked you up somewhere in Ostermalm, and you were given out because you'd been asked to show your ID at the system log at that time. But uh, <laughs> there's, there's little enough danger it that doesn't happen. happen anymore. No, I was going to say there's little enough danger that happened to either of us. But listen, Brian, I know you have Henning in the background there, but the reason I wanted to talk to you today is because you spent over two decades in music, playing the pubs and clubs around Sweden, around Scandinavia. But you have a new project at the back and Armadillo King. Can you just tell me how that came about? Well, it came about, I started working at the start of the, the pandemic, you know, needs must, needs be, I had to get a job, a real job. And mm. um, I started working at the school as a music teacher. And my colleague was a guy called Jun Lundin, who is a drummer. And we play, he played me a song one day by this guy who's sitting beside me uh, under the moniker Armadillo King. Now, I was safely said I was knocked out by the, the material. And he, it was suggested that he and I and another uh, Hawkins Etherquist would meet and rehearse and just jam maybe in a, in a locale. Um, and uh, one thing led to another. And Henning has such a, a treasury of, of material 
um, it's it seemed to work from word go. So we we started into doing this, and then it became a recording project. Uh, and we're blessed to have the the facility to record that. So yeah, so that's that's where it came about, really about a year ago, mm. give or take. And what's, um, what's the story now, Brad? Has this resulted in an album of material, or are you just sort of feeling it out now as you go along? There's an album just it's been released physically on the twelfth of April uh, in Stampin on CD, but you, as you know yourself, CDs are kind of a I suppose a little bit a bit of an anachronism at the moment. But it will be digitally released on the twelfth of May. Yeah, on, on streaming platforms. Yeah, so um, yeah, um, so yeah, we're 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 kind of plugging that at the moment. We have uh, a broadcast, a live broadcast on the twelfth of May as well. Is it in, in the thirteenth? Thirteenth of May. Sorry, Radio Sormland. Um So yeah, so we're we're we're, um, we're we're plugging that as much as we can. Yeah, so it's. Uh, it's, it's most interesting to get involved with, you know, after all these years, as you say. I can imagine. Uh, Henning, Brian is well known among the Irish community here in Sweden as one of the most talented and nicest guys, but we don't often see the guitar hero side of him. Why did you choose to let him loose on Armadillo King with his electric guitar? Well, he was enthusiastic about my songs, and I, I kind of figured that... Uh, you should keep a guy like that. They're <laughs> <laughs> hard to find. And uh, his guitar skills, I guess they have developed in some way. Um, yeah. We've gotten familiar to each other. Mm. And uh, I think you feel a bit more freedom now, maybe, than you did yeah, before. Yeah. And you've been a crucial part in shaping the sound of uh, the album, I would say. Is he a bit of a diva to work with? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. It's quite the opposite, I would say. Are, are you are, are you working as a teacher there as well, Henning? Are you? No, I'm not. I'm I'm actually uh, well. I've been I've been a teacher once in my life, uh, and I've also been a web developer. And now I'm uh, working as an IT manager. So I work with uh, computers and phones and uh, all that stuff that we use every day. What did you think the first time you met Brian? Because uh, uh, did you meet in a sort of a, a rehearsal room the first time or did you meet for a cup of coffee first? How did this uh, this partnership begin? No, we, we met at the rehearsal place. I don't think uh, it's around anymore. They closed. They closed uh, the first year. Yeah, the, um, but we, we met and we rehearsed, I think, one, maybe two songs. Yeah. And uh, we kind of got along good. Uh, which is a very important part, I would say, that you, you, you're a nice guy and, and you, you're kind of funny to hang around with. You don't like my system belonging in Austria, Mom. I can imagine the size of your head now and all the nice things <laughs> of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go can the door. Can, can I just ask you, because I'll get back to Brian now in a second, but he put up the links to a couple of YouTube clips and I'd encourage everybody listening to have a listen to them. Um, it's a very sort of unique sound, right? But there's a lot of sort of, I hear a lot of different influences in them. I'm not going to tell you what I think they are. What kind of thing influences you when you sit down to write a song? Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, of course, I, I, I'm very influenced by, by uh, guys like Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, and David Bowie, who I've listened to uh, for a very long time. So, so you kind of, uh, when you think about the songwriting that those guys uh, come up with, you, you kind of put the bar quite high. Uh, uh, it can almost uh, seem like an 
very tough mission to to write a song uh, when you listen to Bob Dylan or Petty or Bowie. But at the same time, I've, I've been doing this for quite some time. I've been writing in my native language, Sweden, it was Swedish for, for quite some time. And I've also been writing in English. And I find that uh, writing in English, it's actually easier for me than, than uh, being interviewed in English, I would say, because uh, I... I have more time to 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 formulate <laughs> what I'm about to say, and uh, the words that I come up with sometimes inspire a melody uh, of some sort. I kind of see like, see it like a picture, uh, uh, different colors, and uh, it, the words kind of leads me on to a mood, and the mood leads me on to chords, and well, that's. That's kind of like it. <laughs> Do you have different themes in Swedish songs and English songs, Henning? I think uh, it's quite different for, for me because when I sing in Swedish, uh, I would say it's much more from uh, my point of view as mm. Henning. When I sing in English, I kind of uh, easier adopt to the alter ego that, that I uh, kind of uh, have in my head who is a, a kind of a loner, a, a guy uh, kind of cowboy-ish like. like the, the, the High Plains Drifter of the Clint Eastwood films, that kind of thing. Yeah, kind of like that. Uh, at the same time, uh, I write some songs which are basically coming right from me. So, so it's, it's kind of a mix between the alter ego and Henning, I would say. And the English language is... Uh, richer in words so you can kind of be poetic in a way in English that's kind of difficult to be in Swedish you can or at least you you can write songs and lyrics in another way I would say mm. that's how I, I feel about it yeah it's fascinating because uh, the first time I sort of clicked on on the link and I started listening to the song and it did stick out one thing was this of the how how high quality musicianship and that kind of thing. But then when you started to sing, you went, okay, this guy's done this before, right? This is not the first song he's written in English. Brian, if we get onto that topic, when you came over here, uh, I know Ian Maloney, who's probably listened to this as well, he's written a book about being a troubadour and traveling around the pubs. And indeed, I did it for six months myself before I settled down and got a proper job. Um, how has that life changed over the years, Brian? Because you were like doing the circuit for before any of us, basically, weren't you? I came in April of 1995 with the O'Malley's. Peter Donnelly was the lead singer, or he is still the lead singer of the O'Malley's. And we were, he, he had secured a couple of tours here via John Higgins' Blackwater Music. Mm. So, like, we kept um, house chain. There was a, a it, it, it was a more a group format back then. There was a lot of troubadours as well, yeah. of course, like yourself. But we, we were touring in the group format. That kind of scaled down. I eventually played with a band called The Stand which were a Canadian band, Dale Forty in the stand. And then with Pat Hayes from Cry Before Dawn, who um, who eventually went back to Ireland and, and reformed Cry Before Dawn. Actually, Cry Before Dawn at one point rehearsed here. I was rehearsing with him on guitar with Pat. Was that Pat with, who played the accordion, was that? No, no, Pat, Pat, Pat Hayes, the drummer with Cry Before Dawn. Oh, sorry, the drummer, Pat, yeah, sorry. That's a... Yeah, yeah, and, and Brendan, Brendan Wade. So they, there was a, a tour organized, but it just didn't happen at the time. Anyway, that's this not here and there. So gradually over a period of time, I played with Frank Mulcahy, if you remember Frank, the accordion player with Griot. Yes. Um, and Tom Mulcahy for, for a while. And then we had our own band going, Theatre Club, with 
Blocky and with Brian Freel and with Neil Graham. Um, that was going for gee, that was going for ten years, I think. Yeah. And uh, I think people like in Sweden the Lilla Lorda thing of Wednesday has changed. That's kind of not non-existent. It is in some small towns, maybe like Shopping or Nevekvarn or Oxelösund or whatever. Mm. But in the big cities, it's not really there anymore. So that kind of the taste has changed, and the novelty of the Irish. And I, Phil, when I came over first, I'd never played an Irish song in my life. Mm. I was I was playing um. I was playing country music, yeah. So mostly, so um, you know, adapt and survive was was the name of the game. Yeah. Did you and play a lot of Irish on... music back at that time? Like because we've all had that. Can you play whiskey in the yard? We've all had that twenty times in one night. Did you do a lot of that? None. I played at, at the time. I played absolutely none. I'd never played <laughs> an Irish song. I mean, I, as I said, country, Will and Jennings, John Prine. Whatever that was my thing, you know. And I played, I played with a band, and then I played with Darren Cash for a ton, we say, for a long time yeah. as a two-piece. So lately, it's been true with all of it. I think it's, it's mostly been the economic, you know, the, the pandemic really kind of, kind of put the nail on the head with that one. And the money wasn't there to pay, hmm. and different various side projects than playing guitar with Craig, Claire Cunningham and with Darren Cash, as I say, Todd, yeah. and I was Henning with Armadillo King. Um, so that makes life a bit more, a lot more interesting, you know, and um, you get older too, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I think everybody sort of settled down. You moved to New Shopping, geez, a good few years ago since you left Stockholm now, was it? It is, yeah, about 12 years ago, maybe longer, yeah. Good luck, because I noticed a sort of a change at one point around you, Brian. I think you were playing the Liffey or somewhere one night, and we were having a conversation while you were on the stage about Steve Earle. And I thought, right, he's going to play some really well-known Steve Earle song now, you know, just because we've talked about it. You went, oh, I'll play one last year. You played a Steve Earle song I'd never even heard of that night. And I don't right. think I've heard it to this day. Because that was sort of your first love, was that kind of Americana, country music. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah. I would have played with Joe Brown back in the day. Joe in Limerick was a lo- still a local legend in Limerick. And it, with the likes of Joe Brown, you had Ray Fien on drums, Johnny Fien's brother from Parsips. Ray's played with the Water Boys, Donald Lunny. Steve Earle, he actually played with Steve Earle at one point. Wow. And Dave Keery was in that band, who's now with Dan Morrison. Um, so that, that was a that was a good group, was it 30 years ago? And uh, they, they're just, I mean, as musicians, they're just off the scale. Yeah. So I, I was just the, the young pup trying to learn something from them. And I still, I, I'm delighted to say, an honor to say they're, they're still friends of mine. And um, I do play with Dave. I do a two piece with Dave Keery when I can, you know, the, the two of us play together. Mm. So, so country was kind of, it came from my family originally because my older brothers kind of instilled this kind of love of, we'll say, uh, Steve Goodman, John Prine, uh, Waylon, mm-hmm. early Tom Waits. Um, that, that that was all kind of circulating around our household. You know, I was told, like, don't listen to that, listen to this. Yeah. So I did. And it, it does sink in eventually. I mean, I did the usual Beatles and punk rock thing. And I did, I, you know, went through all that. And heavy, heavy rock. As we, it wasn't heavy metal back in my day. It was heavy rock. Mm. And um, but you know I, I kept going back to country, and I still listen to the likes of Daryl Scott and Tim O'Brien and John Hyatt quite a lot. Mm. Van Van Morrison would be a major major influence as well. Mm. Um, and the Beatles, I mean, so yeah, it's it's a uh, and 
I tend to kind of immerse myself into it. I'm a bit obsessional about music. As you probably know me, Phil, you know me quite well. So. <laughs> Those endless conversations I can have with you about, you know, about John Pryor, about, you know, is specific songs, and you can tell me about them for ages and ages and ages. Mm. I'm sure we'll get into that. Do you, when you go out on the road now, I just saw, by the time this podcast comes comes out, you know, we have played in the Liffey in Stockholm, and then you're down in Fagans for a couple of nights. What kind of things are on your set list? Do you even write a set list anymore, or do you just do it off the top of your head by now? I basically do it off the top of my head, but you, you get to know what people like in these individual places. Sometimes like you, you start bore, I start boring myself. Yeah. You know, I get, I get sick of the sound of my own voice or guitar playing, but, so I'll, I'll do something completely different. And, you know, but the, it's, I wouldn't say formulaic, but it's, it's um, there's a certain thing you have to stick by. And a lot of it is about, what I find with Swedish people is communication. That's what, like, we as Irish people talk, as you know, yeah. a lot. And uh, you know to communicate and make make people feel welcome, make people make people feel familiar, and also to put when they see what I find with Swedish audiences when they when they see you put the actual effort in, then they appreciate that. You know, it's they don't turn their back on you. They say, okay, this guy means something. Yeah. And and you can play original material also. You know, in a lot of these a lot of these places, and they are so welcoming. The, the management there, the places you, you just mentioned, are so welcoming and so kind. You know. It's a, it's fantastic. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honour to play there. Mm-hmm. And uh, looking forward to get down to Fagans as well. You know, down to, down to Roland Flynn and Will Kelly and the lads down there. They're just lovely guys, you know. Yeah. So they, they give me they give me basically a free reign down there. I just say what well, do what you want. Yeah. And that's fine. So they do what they want. But do you sort of stick to anything? Like, okay, right. I have to play a Beatles song now. You know, we all know Country Roads, Credence is the thing. I remember John Higgins being on the phone to me in ninety early nineteen ninety nine and going, "Do you play any Credence songs?" And I went, "Fucking hate Credence." And he went, "Well, you better learn." You know, do you do, you do any of those things anymore? Or is that sort of passe for now? I do, of course, I do, absolutely. Because people work hard enough to work long weeks. You know, and they want to be entertained. There's a, there's an also an, an element of comedy, make them laugh, yeah. make put them in good form. Um, and Swedes do dance and make sure that they, they do, you know, keep it fairly lively, whatever. But they, then again, you, you do get the, the request, you do you sing it in your own songs, and we, you know, you do that. There's, there, are, there are points in all these gigs where you can do that. The freedom is there to do that. Mm. That that has changed actually, because it, a long time ago you had to go up and play with the piper, page, you know, pages yeah. play. Yeah. Now you can, you because I, maybe I'm, I'm so old that they kind of say, oh yeah. He's done all this. Play someone, play something you wrote yourself. So it's nice to do that, you know, to have the freedom. And um, yeah, that, that's that's what I'll be doing. But I, the whole thing is entertain. It's actually entertainment. A lot of storytelling. A lot of I wouldn't tell the juicy stories, no, Phil. You know, and I would say I mean, that for a book like Ian Maloney's doing. I've read that book. Wait, it comes out. Henning, could I just ask you about that sort of troubadour tradition that we have in Sweden? I remember I lived in Mashta out by Arla, the Arlanda Airport when I moved over here first, and that even the local little pizzeria on a Saturday night, you'd have a succession of fellas coming through there with a couple of speakers and a PA, and you know, p- people playing those songs by the Beatles and by Credence. You know, is that something that is, is a very popular? form of entertainment in Sweden and where does it come from? Uh, well, I think uh, once I turned 18, which was uh, in, back in 1991 uh, Only a young fella uh, Yeah, yeah it, Troubadours uh, was, I guess, already a part of the scene then, but um, 
during the 90s there there was this um, how do you say that uh, i kind of sorry to say this brian i kind of uh, uh, i i didn't love them if i say say so i thought they they kind of um, took up space for other people who actually write their own songs <laughs> <laughs> no offense intended. No, 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 no. you can't can see it, but Brian's getting his coat and fucked off out of the room now. We're going. <laughs> yeah, the punches were thrown there. But I guess uh, people want to party and and uh, people want to hear familiar stuff. So, so there's always room for a guy mm. singing famous songs. I guess. Yeah. I suppose that's always been the great debate, though, hasn't it? Like you know, people who write original songs like yourself and like Armadillo King, and then you know who are trying to do something and create art, and then there's other people who are sort of trying to entertain. And I think the great Irish fiddle player uh, Martin Hayes, he did that. He went around the Irish pubs like we did, Brian, and you know, playing yeah. the, the fastest reels he possibly could. And then he realised, yes. hang on a second, this is not for me. Uh, Henning, do you have any relationship to Irish music? I mean, it's not obvious from the songs that I've heard you uh, of yours that you've written that there's any relationship but do you have any irish artists that appeal to you in particular of course uh, there's always you too uh, and i i listened to hot house flowers actually quite it was way back i bought the album i think it's called home yep magnificent uh, back in uh, 1990 1991 so so and and their hit song don't go it it appealed yeah. quickly to me uh, of course uh, Sinead O'Connor. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah, lots of good music. Yeah, actually, I got the very sad news yesterday that Leo Barnes, the saxophone player in the Hot House Flowers, uh, Flowers have just passed away, which is very unfortunate. I I just commiserated with Jake there last night, you know. Magnificent. magnificent. And then the saxophone was such a driving part of Don't Go, of everything that the the Flowers were doing at that time. And a very unusual instrument as well. And of course, the voice of Sinead O'Connor. Was was Irish music, you know, when you think of Irish music, Henning, are they the artists you think of? Because unfortunately, there's a later generation than you that sort of, you know, links us to the likes of Westlife and Boyzone, which none of us want to be associated with. <laughs> well, actually, for me, I think it's it's bands like U2, Hot House Flowers, Sinead O'Connor. Uh, they kind of symbolizes um, Irish music to me. I didn't even know Boyzone was Irish. Oh, we could be thankful for small mercies. I know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we kept that quiet. And of course, there's always the the, the little whistle. What's that called? The, the tin, tin whistle, whistle yeah. Yeah, that, that's kind of when you say Irish music. I guess that's the first thing I think about. Mm. Yeah, the whistle. Yeah, is, and is, post, is, the, is, is the drinking culture a big part of that as well? Now you two were never really that associated with hard drinking or Sinead either. But did all that go hand in hand for you? You said you turned eighteen in nineteen ninety one. So the pub culture, Fagans and the Dubliner, and that might have been one part, of it, and the music the other, or have the two sort of separated now? Yeah, in a way, I guess. Uh, Always, uh, I re- I can I, I would actually like to spend the night listening to you and Maybe your radio. Yeah, religion. I think I would like that because in Sweden during the nineties there was like every troubadour sang the same songs, and I and I believe that you you have a different set list. I just I just couldn't sing the same songs. Yeah. I wasn't able to do it. But I, I, what I would do is. Um, I just like like the songs I like, you know. Sometimes, and I, I did a song recently in Norway where um, the song I liked, and you could hear the splashes that went over their heads. 
you know, <laughs> it was one of those ones. Um, but, you know, but I saw it in anyway, you know, I mean, the, the funny thing is you asked about the drinking, I think that, come, that comes with sort of your freedom when you hit 18, you know, you're yeah. able to have a pint legally in a pub. So that's, you know, you want to be, and as well as that, the hottest lures came along at that time. It was kind of a, I suppose the gypsy lifestyle, the raggle taggle thing, you know, mm. and that appealed to a lot of people in Sweden because Sweden appears, according to my wife, you know, would have been fairly, you know, they're shy race of people, really. Mm. Um, so that kind of, you know, laughing and jumping around the place for no no apparent reason, as we do, you know, mm. um, that appeals to people. I think they are, you know, as someone said, I think they all think we're mad. Yeah. So it's a. I would say that drinking and music goes well together because drinking can make you even more emotional, which actually makes uh, songs have a larger impact. Yeah, well, the, uh, the inhibitions disappear. You know, the barriers come down, and it's easier to talk to people and to dance on a table and yeah. to sing along, isn't it? Yeah. What yeah. was what was the the most surprising song that you've ever played, Brian? I'm thinking of a few times when I played. I used to play before the Deluge, which is a Jackson Brown song that Moving Hearts had in their first album, and I'd always right. play it early in the set because I just didn't fucking care. You know, it's right here's five right. minutes that I can burn here. And the other one was the band played Walsy Matilda, and I remember telling the story of that the first World War song. It was written by a man called Ernest Bogle, and you're telling the story of this kind of thing, and you know people were actually listening. And I sang the song, and people afterwards were saying, "That's amazing. I'd never heard it before." And the Pogues have done mm-hmm. it, and obviously. Yeah, Liam Clancy has done it. Did you ever have a song that just said, fuck it, I'll play this? And people went, whoa, what was that? Um, or did possibly, you just yeah, play probably, Creedence? Yeah. <laughs> I, just a Creedence, yeah. Uh, I, I think uh, maybe in Irish music, like, On Ragged Road would have, been, would have been one of those songs that people kind of said, you know, I just kind of, I, I think I want to recognize I kind of lost myself in it or something, I don't know. Yeah. And there was a Limerick connection there as well because, you know, Patrick Cavanagh wrote about Hilda Moriarty, who lived in Limerick, was married yeah. to Donald O'Malley, the Minister of Education, yeah. at, the t- at the time, you know, kind of um, unrequited love, etc., etc. The other one would have been a case of you by Johnny Mitchell, which I would pretty much put in most. Sorry. And and the, the, there's a song by Bob Dylan called "You're a Big Girl Now," which I've been doing for the last few years. Yeah. And um, I, I put them in, and people get to know them. There's one, one or two songs, maybe original songs they put in, and they test it. And if it's good, that's the one thing actually. The one thing about Henny's material that struck me, you were talking about songs that are familiar. The one thing that I recognised was that I could remember the melody immediately after I left the rehearsal. Yeah. And it was singing at my head. That's always a good sign. You know, that, that's a good sign. Yeah, that it's not only is it is it original, but it's also melodic. So I'll be sending you on a couple of more tracks and uh, you can judge for yourself. You know, I must send you on a CD as well. Yeah. I mean, that's the amazing thing about it. Like, a good song sometimes feels familiar, even though you've never heard it before. And like I say, it just mm-hmm. it sets its hooks in you and you're kind of stuck, you know? And yeah. the, the, that's the marvellous thing that I noticed about Henning's songs. When it just, as I said, the moment I click play on the first video that you put out on Facebook and you're, when, you know, when I learned about Armadillo King, that, I just had that, yeah, this is familiar, but it's really, really new, you know? Uh, again, if we could just go over, it, so the streaming, it's going to start streaming on, was it May the 12th? Uh, it'll be available for streaming. That's right. Uh, on May 12th, it will be available on Spotify and Apple Music and uh, other services. Yes. Cool. And on May 13th, you're going to do uh, something with Radio Sormland there, Australia's uh, Radio. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. We can play. I think. I think it will be three songs live in the studio. So, so there's no room for error. <laughs> no pressure, lads. No pressure. And it, we what, never make a mistake. 
<laughs> where can people keep up with what Armadillo King uh, uh, are doing? Is it just add Brian as a friend, Brian O'Connor as a friend on Facebook, or do you have any pages or social media out there? We do, we do. We, we have, uh, of course, we always have armadilloking.com, which yep. is uh, our website. And uh, then we have uh, a Facebook page, which uh, it's a good way to communicate and reach uh, people who you otherwise wouldn't reach, I guess. Yep. Uh, so, so Facebook and, and Instagram a little bit Instagram, but we don't have many followers there. But that's, Facebook that's where is... all the old people are, lads. They're telling me it's vital. It's vital. We have to be on the gram. I, I have it and I can't drive it. Since <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I put the batteries in the wrong way around in the Instagram. You know? <laughs> Just w- one final question, lads. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me uh, today. Brian, you've been on the road for over 20 years. Where does this end, my friend? Are you just going to keep going oh. until the day before they put you in that box? <laughs> I thought it ended two years ago. I said, oh, jeez. Well, never ends. Pandemic. It never ends. There's always one more gig. Yeah. I, I didn't know where it was going to go. Back then, two years ago, I said, oh, my God, this this is it, you know. Um, but I'm enjoying it. As long as I'm able to, as long as I'm able to do it, I'd, I'd probably do it. I mean, there's nothing worse than a retired musician. Paul McCartney said that. There's nothing more boring than a retired musician. Yeah. Re- really, because all they sit down is they just sit down and talk about places they played and things they did. So that's it. I'm not going to be one of those, you know. <laughs> so, you know, I, ju- I like to keep going as long as I can. I'm enjoying it. I mean, I'm enjoying what I do. I'm enjoying, you know, you obviously get the odd drudge gig, you know, the, the gig where you have to dig in. But, um, battle through it. Battle through it, get through it. But that's fine. You know, that's, that, that goes with the territory as well. And you wake up, as a, it's another day and you try to reinvent, you know. So if that answers that question, I, I don't know. But... Well, look, at you've been reinventing yourself for that long now. And I mean, I have to say that the, the thing I respect most about you is that you don't compromise. You go out there both to entertain and to educate. And I've enjoyed watching you do it for over two decades. And I'm enjoying watching you do it now with Armadillo King. And I can't wait to see what happens in the future. Gentlemen, Henning, Brian O'Connor, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank, Thank you, you. Thank you. Take care.
There you go. That is Armadillo King there with our very own Brian O'Connor on guitar with a song called The Bad. The first song you heard there leading into the interview was called Ghost Town. You may have worked that out from the chorus of that one. Um, it's fantastic to hear Brian playing the electric guitar again. I can count on the fingers of one hand the amount of times I've seen him play or heard him play electric guitar until now. And it's magnificent. You know, we, if, if you've seen him play at all, you'll see how creative he is and the great things he can do with an acoustic guitar. But uh, to see him strapping on the electric guitar again is absolutely fantastic so keep an eye out for that album keep an eye out on their social media for when that album comes out and if they're coming to your town go and check them out um it's going to be a great summer ahead for those boys i really hope that they do get the chance to get out on the road that they get the chance to play in a few of the cities and towns around sweden maybe they might play some of the irish bars like the wonderful veerstrom's pub who sponsored this podcast uh, that they can get down and play a few shows around i know they were in stampin in stockholm recently um which is actually on the same street as Veerstrom's there. So uh, well worth getting out to see the lads play if you do have that opportunity. Remember, this is a listener-supported podcast, so if you'd like to contribute, and I would strongly encourage you to do so, uh, you can do so in a number of different ways. The best way for me would be to go to patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm and become a monthly patron. That way I can sort of calculate every month. I know every month that there's a certain amount of money coming in that makes it worth my while doing these podcasts. The sponsorship from Veerstrom is great, but the more we can get in, the more these podcasts I can bring in, and they seem to be getting longer and longer and longer. So, uh, And I want to spend the time, and I want to produce the absolute best quality thing that I can for you every week. So if you can help me, that would be fantastic. Patreon.com forward slash Arabman in Stockholm. If you just like a specific episode of that, you want to switch a few bob to the show, you can do so on 123-2424-166. 123-2424-166. Advertising and sponsorship, Irish and Sweden podcast at gmail.com or hit me up on social media. And again, a huge thanks to Veerstrums and to Martin there who have been supportive of this podcast from day one. They've just been magnificent about the whole thing. And it's great to have them on board. But the more the merrier, the more people we can get on board the more podcasts we can do the longer we can keep this thing going on now before i forget i got a message the other day from noel sheehy on facebook and he wanted to draw attention to an event being organized by max ortiz you will remember a few weeks ago we had max on the podcast talking about Gwilgori Satsulin, which is the Irish speakers in Sweden group. He's a group of about, I think there's about 80 people in it there on Facebook, and it takes place here in Stockholm. If you want to start one in Luleå or in Javla or in Örebro or wherever you are, get in touch with Max. I'm sure Max would be happy to help you. And basically they get together and they speak uh, Irish. They have any sort of, you know, it doesn't matter if you've a cupola fuckle, just a few words to begin with, or if you're fluent. Actually, if you're fluent, it'd probably be very helpful if you can show up. But they're getting together here in Stockholm at Veerstrom's Pub, the proud sponsors of this wonderful podcast, and Stockholm, nay, Sweden's best Irish bar, on Monday the 25th of April at 6 o'clock. So that's Monday the 25th of April at Veerstrom's Pub in Gamla Stan. Martin and the boys there, again, playing host to a great event for the Irish community. And directly afterwards, I believe, there's going to be some live traditional Irish music there. So there's going to be a session in Veerstrom's at, uh, I think it's 7 o'clock that usually starts. But anyway, there'll be about an hour of chat in the Irish language before then. So I'd well suggest that you get along. And you know what? I might actually have to make it in myself. I've, uh, I've a thing usually on Monday afternoons. I'm busy until about half past five in the suburbs, but I'll have to try to get into that because the combination of the language and the music both at once, Jesus, it's hard to beat it. So uh, if you can get in there, um, look them up on Facebook. So it's, uh, let me see now, I'll just see if I get it right. Gwilgori Satsulan. So you'll find them on Facebook there. Again, if I'm smart enough now and I can remember it, I'll stick the link in the show notes there. Join the group, get in touch. Either set one up where you are or come to the one in Stockholm and you'll see Noel Sheehy there and you'll see me there and you'll see plenty of other people uh, let couple of fucking Australia accounts a coup. 
So the other morning I went out to pay Dan Hickey a visit and he's living out in the back of me now with the wonderful Busra who's been knocking around for many years. I haven't seen her in a while actually but she wasn't there now because Dan was sitting working from home. Um, Dan, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, is just a brilliant fella, fantastic, really, really gifted sportsman, the kind of guy who turns his hand to anything and uh, just turns out to be brilliant at it. And he's given himself into, well, he's put himself into the cutthroat business of becoming a professional golfer here in Sweden, right? Not enough for Dan just to turn up and do the odd scramble with the boys on Sunday morning. No, 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 he's going right to the very top. So, given the time of the year that's in it, the golf courses are opening up. And I know, despite the fact that I'm not a big fan of the sport myself, mostly because I'm shite at it, right? But uh, I decided that there's plenty of you out there listening who would like to hear about Dan's story and maybe get a few tips off, maybe improve the old swing yourself, knock a couple of shots off the handicap before the summer. So, here he is from County Tipperary, a fine footballer, a fine hurler, but most of all, a professional golfer. This is Dan Hickey. And we all knew what a great athlete you were at that time. But then all of a sudden you decided you were going to shift the focus uh, from the, the post of the Gaelic football pitch to the golf course. How did that come about? Yeah, injury, mostly. <laughs> uh, the old shoulder give in. Uh, played hurling with the Viking Gales. Yeah. Um, so within one of the tournaments, I dislocated my shoulder. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's what started off. And played ga, went back playing football again. And then the same thing happened. So it was like... You know, it was either do an operation and wait two or three years and recover or just call it days and go back to the golf instead where less injury. So, so is this official now? You've retired from Gaelic Games now. This is the official retirement announcement. As an Irishman, you can never say never, you know. <laughs> the club may come calling. Yeah, yeah, the yeah there might be a comeback somewhere in the future. But uh, now, I mean, now the golf is, is taking off and um, so we've got sponsorship and everything. So, so it's, you know, I said I'd give it a good go, see how see how. Pans out. How, how did you get started with golf? Did you play golf back in Ireland? I did. I originally, my grandfather got me into it years ago uh, when I was about 10 years of age. Uh, so he, there was a golf course close to us. So I played rugby, football, hurling, all the sports when I was younger. Mm. And golf was kind of something we done during the summer. A little, you know, it was just some summer camps and stuff. So I kind of, it was kind of always there. Um, and then. When I, I actually got an injury when I was younger, with uh, had a heart problem uh, when I was 18, so I couldn't play any sports for two years. So I went back to golf, was the only thing I could play. I couldn't exert myself. Yeah. So golf was kind of the, the thing I always went back to. Um, it was nice and, you know, there was no running or anything, so the doctor said that, that was something I could do. Mm. And my grandfather was a manager of a golf course, so it was kind of... It worked well, and then I worked on that golf, same golf course. So it was literally work there, and then after work was playing golf and played junior competitions in Ireland, and kind of took off from there. So, at what point did you realise, hang on, I'm fairly handy at this? It was actually when I moved to Sweden, believe it or not. Um, was it? Yeah. Yeah, it was. I moved here, and then <clears throat> um, worked as a project manager, building different golf courses, and working as civil engineer. And so, it kind of went back to golf again and it was it was only about maybe four years ago five years ago where i was like geez this is pretty handy and then a guy i played one competition and then the manager of this uh golf course he came up to me when he seen the results and he was like you 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 know you have a fair shot you you know 
you're, you're new here and he was like what do you do and you know yeah. you're interested in getting involved in this team and getting involved in tournaments and I was like yeah sure why not like I, yeah. so I, I kind of took it from there and then I went in got my handicap right down um, and then started playing more like scratch tournaments and I, I, hang on a second I got my <coughs> handicap right down like it's the easiest fucking thing in the world no that. no yeah it might <laughs> seem easier but I mean it's it's um I kind of you know I, once I go into something you go all in so yeah, I, I, I train like it takes a lot of time you know, you're working. The thing that worked out was in Sweden. It's it's bright until like eleven o'clock at night. Yeah. So for me, it was like working and then straight out to the golf course. Yeah. Uh, train for three or four hours every evening. Yeah. Um, and I just it just kind of took off from there. Got good at it. Um, got a trainer in, helped me out with a little bit of things and working with tournament schedules and kind of kind of just took off from there and um, enjoyed it. I mean, it was great. So. Yeah. And then, so when you mention that thing of getting your handicap down, right, it's the goal of everybody who's sitting in a, cooped up in an office listening to this today to go, yeah. Jesus, I'd love to be out in the golf course. How did you sort of set about that? Did you sort of go to a pro and say, look, we need to take apart my game here? And... For the the first part of it, I mean, I I just worked it on myself. Yeah. Um, and then as you enter into tournaments, then the handicap is automatically registered. So it goes in your results every time. Yeah. Um, so I got my handicap down to about four which is you can turn pro from from four and under okay so i got it down to that level i was like right i got down here myself and then there's you know it's not just train yourself it's different equipment so you have there's all these different technologies of track man and whatnot so then i went to a pro and we looked at my equipment and bought all different types of equipment that fix my swing and swing speeds and stuff um and from there then i got a coach in uh, working on my my game as well in different aspects. I mean, it's it's small little details, you know, small little things like so. It just takes time to work on it. From there, then got down to scratch and then to plus handicap and turn pro. Then two years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing thing. They talk about marginal gains in sports, in cycling, in golf, yeah. and that kind of thing. So, what would be the difference between the clubs that are in your bag now and the clubs that you brought over, you know, from your granddad's golf course? As yeah, because well? I originally had the same clubs I've had since I was about eighteen. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. So they were all just stock clubs, you know, nothing. Um, and it's all down to like swing speeds and like different shafts that like gives you different bends. Yeah. So everyone. Is fitted to their own you know there's not like mine's going to work for your swing you know or your so it's like a suit basically yeah it's, it's all tailored. yeah exactly it's all tailored down so and you have to go you know to these track mats and they'll give you like all the numbers and the spin rates and the speeds yeah so they'll they'll go into detail and you know there's about a thousand different materials and shafts and whatnot to use so yeah. they break it down to fine numbers and then you decide yourself which you feel better with and yeah um so once you got that locked in it helps you with like distance controls and you know you get yardage books and tournaments like it's all just like fine numbers you're going through yeah every different shot like and it's it's um it's interesting when you get into it but it, it takes a lot of time to to get there i mean obviously if you're i mean we're sitting in back of be here there's a golf outlet store across the way there right? i can go and buy one a of the main clubs. reasons we moved but um like if you were to go over there now, you buy a set of clubs for three thousand, five thousand crowns, right? I'm assuming what's in your bag is after costing a lot more than that, is it? Yeah, like you oh, know. Okay, for for those of you listening now, Dan's eyes are watering as I asked him that question. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know how much I can say now before I get in trouble. But is Buster listening to this podcast? Yeah, I hope or not. I hope not. So, <laughs> but it does. It costs a few quid to get these. It things does. Out. It does. Um, like you know, just a driver could cost ten thousand kroner. You know. Jesus. Um. So when you when you when you start there and like break it down and 
it costs a lot and for me to when the sponsorship came in it was it was amazing you know because yeah. that was when i could literally concentrate on getting the right materials and equipment and then tournaments costs a lot of money as well yeah. um so other than the sponsorship like it's very hard to do like golf it's it's an expensive sport oh, like know, yeah. yeah like the travel and hotel costs and whatnot like so yeah. tell me about like i mean this is the, the amazing thing it was like I've known you for ages. Like, I don't know why it surprised me, but when you said, oh, you know, turn pro at the golf, and I went, of course he did. Yeah, you know, yeah. He's not good at everything. Was that a big thing for you to say, right, now I'm a professional, now I'm going to get sponsorship, I'm going to enter these big tournaments? Yeah, I mean, at, for, at, at the start, I was like, shit, am I good enough to do this? Sorry, you know, and you know, my coach said, like, he was like, of course you can. I mean, you're down to this level now. You, you know, there's no other tournaments you can play. Yeah. I mean, if you're playing as an amateur, you can't, you can't get sponsorship. You yeah. know, they changed that rule, I think, last year where college people who go to golf colleges can take a certain amount of sponsorship. Yeah. But before, you couldn't do that. So in order for me to play these tournaments, I, I had to turn pro and I was in the category to turn pro. So yeah. um, so I just I, I made the big leap and said, look, we'll try it for a year and see how it goes. And yeah. I mean, it, it worked out. I've, I placed in a couple of good positions and sponsors were happy. So they kept going for the next year. And yeah. the main thing is to keep them happy as well so they can you know um but they have to get value for money they have to get well, value for money as well yeah and it's it's very hard when you're starting off the first couple of years there's a lot of pressure to deliver and stuff but these yeah. two sponsorships were were very happy when just saying look we'll sponsor you we just want to get our name out there and yeah. you know they didn't ask for too much who are the companies that sponsor you at the moment so one of them was uh, road rental so yeah. i work in civil engineering as well so they knew me and we played a couple of golf company events yeah. so i came in and played a couple of company events for them beat um, the lard of everybody yeah else. so they set up a company tournament <laughs> and i i play for them and stuff so yeah um and another one was uh, vesta group as well so yeah. so it was within the civil engineering industry that they got to know me uh yeah. realized that i play golf and sponsorship level and they they came to me then and offered sponsorship so it was what do they to get do. for their money dan do you just sort of you know grip and grin with the managing director kind of thing or do you do um, golf is is pretty good i mean for the industry in because a lot of companies set up like uh, events every year for their clients and stuff and a lot of it's done in golf courses so for them to have like a pro involved who's also in the industry and understand what they do and stuff was you know they could take clients out to me and i could give them help with like training and stuff and help them with training and stuff and golf courses and it it just kind of brings together a little group for them and off off the work site you know to, yeah. to bring them in and they could have lunch conferences and then do a, i could do an out and day with them so it's pretty much just helping them with with client base yeah um the pro tournaments here in sweden are they the usual four days thursday to sunday kind of thing first yeah two qualifying? in sweden it's three days okay yeah so normal normal in in european tournaments and pga it's it's four days well yeah. five days they do like uh a pro-am is what's called yeah so they'll bring in like people like what i did for example they'll bring in their companies their sponsorships and yeah. they'll get to play with the pros on the day before yeah. and then the tournament starts from thursday to sunday mm-hmm. so here it's friday to sunday instead and, and you tip away there with them and and I'll, I'll go out the day before and i'll be practicing there and then they'll set up a pro a pro-am as well maybe on the thursday yeah. here in sweden so they get to play with members and and other companies that sponsor the events so, so where's the cut then because usually in the european tour the pga the cut is you play thursday you play friday and then sort of half the field yeah. is told to fuck off home exactly and, and the yeah. rest goes on. does the cut come on a friday evening then in sweden yeah the cut comes after one day so you have you have one day to deliver pretty much that must be uh, huge pressure though, it's it? it's massive pressure you you know um 
and and it's it's small marginals like it could be one or two shots you know it's yeah. it's all based on the average score between one day um but i mean it's it's tough because you're up against for me i'm up against golfers that come they're full-time in university in america yeah so they come back here and play these summer tournaments um and then they go back to america and they can train with pros all year all year round eight hours a day in florida exactly and i have to train like indoors here you know indoors all winter but they're out playing courses and have coaches full-time and you know they're getting a full year-round experience so they're coming here in top form where i'm coming out from playing indoor golf and you know it's it's kind of just getting getting back to bases again and getting everything logged in like so it's yeah. it's tough the first couple of tournaments so mm. in the next week you know next upcoming weeks now the tournaments will be kicking off again so mm. how do you handle that mentally because like say you go out bogey the second hole and you're going ah shit and you're still like 16 holes to play like you know is it very difficult to put that behind you then it's it's very difficult that was that was one of the main things when i started off in the pro was like was was getting the nerves and like the mental side of the golf uh you know with dealing with that in tournaments as you said you, know, you could go out and you could bogey the first couple of holes and then guys will just switch off or they'll they'll deviate from their game plan yeah um and it's it's very tough like and i've seen guys crumble under the pressure you know yeah. um I, my coach helped me a lot with that it was in saying you know the mistakes come you just learn to deal with them move on stick to your game plan just take it like one shot at a time yeah. one hole at a time you know so if that mistake is done leave it you know continue on keep the grind going yeah. forget about it you know one of those things like I mean Niall Scullion will tell you that like I, I don't like golf at the moment right yeah. and it's mostly because and I have to admit this publicly I'm terrible at it yeah. because I just don't have that ability like you know one one bad shot won't just ruin the round ruins my day you know yeah. so when you find yourself I mean the other side of that then is can you get very sort of you know very high as well if you know you're three four under coming to the 16th like is there a risk then that you can lose a run of yourself there is there is I mean it's all you know that that's in every tournament it's something you learn to deal with as you go on because um, you can be standing on a very tough you know 17 or 18 hole where there's water left and right and you're like what to do now yeah you know your your hands are shaking you know you're like i'm leading you see the leaderboard and you're like shit first time i'm leading you know yeah um so it's just dealing with that and a coach helps you a lot with that as if to say right you know don't don't take the risk you know you can take a smaller club find an area where you're happy hitting to and you're comfortable yeah. and just get yourself off the tee so you take the risks it's mm. taking the risk out of it you know you, you mentioned that you like you're sort of at the side of the golf. You're still involved in civil engineering, right? Yeah. There seems to be a lot of computation, a lot of risk management, and that kind of thing. So it yeah. seems like the two very much go hand in hand. There. Yeah, yeah. You go from a stressful week and straight out to the golf course. So yeah. <laughs> For more stress. Yeah, you know? yeah. But is it when you were making those decisions, Dan? Um, you're standing on the 17 tee, say water left and right, and that kind of thing. How long do you have to sort of compute? Okay, you know, do you know the course? Are these yardage guys guides any use to you, or do you just go? Ah, fuck it. Just take a two iron now and slap it up the middle, kind of thing. No, it's it's all it's all calculated risks. Um, yeah. you get yardage books and you get uh, green books as well. It'll tell you like meters, but in every shot you have to recalculate everything yourself. You know, they'll yeah. give you standard range and there'll be like there'll only be about four yardage on on the on the actual fairways and stuff. Yeah. So you have to recalculate every shot yourself. I mean, what what you gotta hit and stuff. Yeah. So you have to know every club what it does how hard you hit it you know you, you'll have about three or four different shots with every club so you yeah. know like a full shot half shot three quarter shots 
and then you take wind and everything else into example and so there's a lot of a lot of calculations yeah. in every shot like so because we hear about the, what's your man's name Bryson DeChambeau these yeah. guys who are able to hit the ball half a mile kind of thing yeah. but that's not really what the game is about it's more about making shots isn't exactly it? exactly and it's all it's all about playing your game yeah. you you can't you know you'll come up against guys that can hit it you know, long you know they'll be bombing it and you'll be like shit I want to do the same but the thing is just to stick to your own game I mean Bryson is is one example. I mean, he went away and trained a lot and worked with speed control. But at the end of the day, you know, he's maybe won one or two tournaments in the last two years. Yeah. So it's it's not optimal to just chase, you know, hitting a long bomb in every shot. Like yeah. so, you get the guys that still hit at the standard charges and are still winning. You know. So. Yeah, yeah. When you look at your own performances in tournaments and where you are in the pro rankings now, because now you can play in all the pro tournaments pretty much in Sweden, right? Yeah. So the next step step up then would that be the European Tour? Yeah, there's there's two stages under the European Tour. Um, you know, they're all, they're all pretty well. I mean, you could live full time off it if you get to them, get to European stages. It's a big if, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's even the Swedish tournament is very it's very hard to make it there. You have to be winning a lot to make it a full time thing. Yeah. Um, and you have you have a couple of different tournaments in Spain and stuff that I've entered two or three of them already. Um, and that that gets you kicked off. You have to get your ranks up, and if you win a tournament, that'll give you a wild card into like the under tour of Challenge Tour. Yeah. And if you get into the Challenge Tour and you you create a certain ranking and there and win maybe one tournament, then you'll get a wild card to the European Tour. Yeah. And then then you're in the the big boy stage. So. I'd imagine there's an awful lot of golfers who'd be vying for these wild cards. It's that? it's 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 amazing. Like to to get to that stage. Yeah. Uh, it takes a lot of commitment, uh, a lot of money, a lot of a lot of travel. Yeah. Uh, these boys are travelling from you know, they could be in Spain one week and then they're going to you know, they could be going to a, a totally different country the next week. So they're flying every week. You know, yeah. you're finishing a Sunday. Um it mightn't have went well, but you've got another tournament locked in. So you could be travelling to Greece or somewhere next week. So you're hopping yeah. on a plane Sunday night, getting there Monday, uh checking into a hotel Tuesday, Wednesday and you're playing again Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So yeah. it's it's the travel that takes a lot of it out of you as well. So yeah. and do you get to know when you turn up at a tournament in Sweden now, do you know sort of half the fellas because you played against them before? Yeah, n- now after it's gone about one or two years you start to get to know a lot a lot of different people and I've played with a lot of guys who are your know, family members and, you know, their sisters are on like the PGA tour in, in America. Like yeah. and you know, these guys are still grinding it out on the Swedish tour, you know. Yeah. So it's 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 never given to you, you know, you have to earn you have to earn your rankings the whole way up. So And when you look at it, what's the ambition then, Dan? Because like you're one of these fellas who as I mentioned earlier, it doesn't matter what sport you turn your hand to, you're very good at it. You started your own business there within civil engineering and it's flying for you, that kind of thing. So is the is the ambition to make it to the European tour? Is it the ambition to win the Irish Open at some point? Um my mission to start was was to turn pro, see how it goes. Um tried the Swedish tour I mean it's worked out grand um, to get to the European tour is a massive ask I mean I started my own company to kind of be able to free up a little bit of time for myself as well yeah. to get to play more tournaments um, and now after two years I can I, I'll be able to enter more tournaments again now and be able to financially you know be able to sponsor myself to play yeah. um, to get to the European tour is is massive you know uh, I'd absolutely love to get there, but yeah, I noticed you weren't ruling it out there. All yeah, right, you, know? you, you wouldn't rule it out, but it's it's a massive, massive ask. I mean, if I got to one of the under tours of the European Tour, uh, yeah. even the under tour to like a couple of Challenge Tour events would be amazing. 
Yeah. Um, I'd be absolutely happy with coming to there. You know. How, how realistic do you think it is? How much more work? What do you have to change to get there, do you think? Um, it's very small marginals, but it's just, it's, it's hard. You have to just go full-time. I would nearly have to like, just quit my job and just work on it every day of the week, yeah. which is tough. That's why I'm saying like, I'd be happy with getting to some of the under-tours of the European Tour. That would be you know get to maybe top 50 of them you get you know a lot more prize money mm. with now with the swedish tours it's like the top three get money and everyone else gets nothing for it you know so yeah, it's, yeah. it's very hard like so um i'm just going to keep grinding away with with my coach that i have now and, and see where it leads yeah yeah so when i win the euro millions tonight right i have all this money that i never had before i say dan you're a full-time golfer now what would you do differently tomorrow in terms of how you train I'd ring my coach and say, yeah, now, now we're in lessons from Monday to Friday every week. And he'd be on your shoulder yeah, every, every day of the weekend. Yeah. So yeah. now I meet him maybe once a week yeah. uh, and just go through. We'll just concentrate on one aspect of the game every week. Yeah. Um, and then you'll go to a tournament is when you'll see where your game's at. You know, golf is very hard to get everything perfect. I mean, the guys that win these bigger tournaments, you know, everything just works you you get into a certain zone which is very hard to get into every week week mm. in week out but as i said like uh even in the pga tour like you get the guys that scheffler he mm. he done nothing he won nothing in his when he was in his college stage and all of a sudden he came out into the tour this year and he's made like 50 million dollars yeah. within the first two years and went to world number one yeah. and and as the guy said he just you get in this zone and you have to just win as much as you can Within, within that stage yeah. uh, to build your rankings up and build the money up and you might get that you might get into that zone again for another year or two you know yeah yeah so it's it's amazing like you just it's just keep grinding and you know it's it's a big it's a big thing mentally yeah um, to try and grind out every week and, and try and get positions when you're not playing well you know it's just well, the 50 million dollars in the bank might help though would it yeah as he said like he he woke up that morning at a tournament and he was he started balling he was like i don't know what to do you know yeah. what i mean he hasn't been in this stage before and he was like i know if i win this tournament it's going to change my life forever yeah. and my family's life forever you know and and it did and he, he grinded it out and, and got the win so yeah. that changed him forever and now now he goes into the tournament with zero stress you know he knows that he has sponsorship, he has the bills are money paid, made, yeah. yeah. His ranking is made and he's gotten exemption for tournaments. Yeah. You know, a lot of guys are grinding it out just to keep their card every year. Yeah, yeah. Whether now if you win a big tournament you'll get to keep your card, you know, might get ten years exemption. Yeah. So the stress is gone, you know. That's the thing. It's just getting to that stage, you know. Yeah. Um, is in is diet a big part of it? Is do you do weight training, that kind of thing as well? I did. I the first year term pro, I went to a friend of ours, Aaron Kennedy. Yeah. Uh, he helped me out massively because uh, you know before I never thought about it. You know, with you know working with your weights and and flexibility in your body. That's that's yeah. a big you know that's a massive hinder in your body. You know, if I had back problems the first year I was playing because you know you could be carrying bags. The COVID came in, so you weren't allowed to have any caddies. Yeah. So you're carrying yourself for you know four hours around. Yeah. Uh, it takes it out of your body massively. So I went in and you know got Aaron as PT, and we worked a uh, worked a couple of months with the body, and that that helped massively. And then you have to bring your diet in as well. You know, you have to try and eat the right foods to keep you fueled. You yeah. know, if you're playing four hours, but you're playing three or four days a week. Yeah. Uh, day after day so and especially in sweden it could be you know 28 degrees you have to keep hydrated and everything you have to eat at the right the right times to keep that energy flow going yeah 
otherwise you know you could be coming to your final holes and you could be just mentally and physically drained you yeah. know it's it's hard to to grind it out you know what, what do you eat during the round do you bring some bananas which are yeah so you know healthy foods is, is very hard you know it's it's yeah. you know just you know you could be eating you know hot dogs and stuff as a standard there but you know you'd be now i'm eating protein bars bananas um nuts keep yeah. you keep you fueled running around you know you can't you can't just have you can't just have an energy drink either you, you give yourself too much energy you know you're going to be you get that extra you get that extra push you're going to be hitting clubs pushing clubs too much and the distance won't add up so you have to keep yourself calm without getting yourself you know too much caffeinated as well so yeah, yeah. you know so it's 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 hard to it's hard to so protein shakes and bananas and nuts and stuff is, is what you'd eat running around yeah what kind of shot gives you the most satisfaction right we have the putting mat here in the hall which is let me see about two and a half meters long yeah. would you prefer to set a hole a 70 foot put or prefer to knock a drive 300 meters um people think you know people a lot of people concentrate on, like driving banging one down but i mean if you if you can't put yourself close or can't you know finish a putt for for a birdie or an eagle you know they're the ones that count yeah. so for me like you know putting is is a major thing um sinking a putt for two or three meters for a birdie or an eagle or or even getting it in for a par that gives me the motivation to continue on yeah but you could go out there and you could drive well and put it on the green and then you could like tree putt and that that mentally like you're like you're you're like i'm doing everything right to the green that that dimpens your confidence yeah yeah especially in tournament wise so for me like putting and, and short game is is massive mm. Now, again, there's going to be fellas hanging on your every word here. I think we know their names, the Don Currys and Niles Gullions in this world, right? What are the most common mistakes that amateur golfers make when they're out there? Is it, like, my common mistake was always just trying to burst the ball with the driver or with a tree wood or something yeah, like that. Yeah, a lot, a lot of amateurs just make mistakes by, you know, not knowing their own game. You know, a lot of people go out there with a slice and they're, they're trying to fix their slice or, you know, their hooks on yeah. the course. Um, for me, when I go out to a course, I know what's working, and even something that's not working, I learn how to play with that on the course. Yeah. You can't go out there and, and change that in the middle of a game. Yeah. So if you go out there with a slice, and you know, I've met a lot of guys, and I've even teached a lot of guys, you know, yeah. that who have this, and I'm like, you just talk them through it. It's like, right, you have a slice. You know, where are you aiming? You know, yeah. they're still trying to hit it straight, but like, you know, nine times out of ten, you you have to learn to play with this in the course. So like, aim aim to where your slice is yeah rather than trying to push or you know trying to trying to fix something on a course it just yeah. doesn't work so. so so if you have a ball and you hit the ball and it goes from left to right you say okay aim for the left so that yeah. at least when it aim, fucking lands yeah, in the just, middle just play what you have yeah. don't don't try and fix it you know you know you've had it for a while you yeah. know stop trying to fix it on the course just just play what you have that day you know without getting too technical what is it that causes that is it where the feet are placed is it the speed of the club it's it's down to about three different things. Uh, it's it's mainly down to people coming over the ball, so coming outwards in yeah. at the last second, and that could be down to like your grip, your stance, and and how your your club is as well. Yeah. You know the the actual settings on your club yeah. could be. And a w- big would factor. you know if I was to stand out in your balcony now swinging a club? Would you go right? I see what's going wrong there straight yeah. away. Yeah, you would. Yeah. How embarrassing would that be for me? <laughs> no, I mean it's it's everywhere. I'm not perfect myself, you know. You get, I get a lot of things I have to fix during the year as well. You know, I yeah. can get that into my game as well, and um, it's very hard to fix stuff yourself. You know, I could even myself, I could go out there knowing what's wrong the whole time, but you have to video yourself. But it's it's always best to go to like um, a pro and yeah. just just ask him. He'll know within 
the first five or ten minutes, what's wrong with you? So when your coach looks at you, when you send him a video, or when he meets you, and you go to the driving range, you go out in the course together, is it difficult for you to take that sort of, even if it's constructive criticism? You know, if he comes and says, "Okay, Dan, there's five different things that are wrong here," do you go, "Ah, fuck it, I may as well give up," kind of thing? No, I love it. I mean, it's, <laughs> do do? yeah, I mean, it's, I, you know, I want them to be criticize me. I want to know what I'm doing wrong. Yeah. Um, and as he said. As we, and when we go out, we work on one thing at a time. There yeah. could be five things wrong, but you're not going to fix all them five things because you've got to hit a shot. You can't be thinking of these five things. Yeah, yeah. You know, you got to fix one thing at a time. When that gets better, you work on to the next thing. So it's 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 a process the whole time. Yeah. Um, and when I train guys myself and give guys tests, it's like you know, you I could tell you ten different things, but you know. You can't think of all. You yeah, just yeah. have to work on one thing, and then we'll come back when this is right. We'll work on the next thing. So yeah, it's amazing, like the parallels, because and Marco Sullivan, who works as a, a, a youth development coach or a soccer coach at AIK, we talk about these things all the time. And you know, like regardless of the sport, it's how you learn these things. And I recognise that from the jiu-jitsu club up the road here that I go to. So I can tell you what other things. It's not going to make any difference to you because yeah. you're not going to be able to do them, yeah. and you're probably not even going to understand it. But and I say that with the greatest will in the world. Yeah. Just, you'll get there eventually, but there's no point in trying to do that now. Exactly. But if you had a simple tip then that's the sort of the long game is like well okay if you hook or slice build that into your game on the greens dan how technical is putting right because i remember there's an irish golfer called philip walton who was on the green when europe won the Ryder cup i think his opponent sort of missed the put rather than him sinking one to win it but he used to use one of these broom handle putters yeah and i always thought when i saw that coming out of the bag i went ah you've lost it here pal yeah. you know is it a very sort of a technical thing is there much it's, you can control it's very technical it goes down to the weight of the club you know different lengths of the club the actual size of the putter grip and you know how you grip the club yeah um a lot of that could throw your game off without knowing it you know mm. um a lot of the guys that use these long putters i mean it could be a, a simple thing as like they, they want to strain on their backs they yeah. like to stand up a lot straighter yeah a lot of people you know might have glasses problem with you know seeing the ball yeah you know and they might want a putter that's shorter down yeah. um so they can concentrate on one one point um so there's a lot of small technical things um that, that factor in yeah. in that stage. So if I were to go to Barkerby Golf Outlet or whatever the hell it's called over there, is there a way of sorting out these things without spending billions or do I need to go to Dan and pay him you know, several hundred euros an hour to, to get an analysis of my game? Yeah, I mean, if you ask a lot of amateurs, they'll go into they'll go into dormy and stuff and look at a putter and they're like, yeah, that looks amazing. You know, they'll go on the look of it yeah. and they might hit a couple of putts on, on the indoor green there. And then just buy it, yeah. you know. But I mean, a lot of these places do a custom fitting, which is included in the price that yeah. a lot of people don't take into consideration. Yeah. You know, you could go, Dorm, you might do it just for putting, but there's a lot of different pros out there that yeah. they'll say, no, we'll, we'll do a custom fitting and we'll find the right putter for you. Yeah. And, you know, it'll be included in the charge, you know, so. So it's worth actually having so that conversation yeah, with them, like, yeah? It's it's worth getting 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 that custom fitting done like yeah. you know it, it might it might cost like 500 crowns extra but i mean you know it's it's 500 crowns but you're getting the right equipment instead yeah. of buying a lot of different putters and oh, this is not working trying to sell it again and, yeah you know it'll save you a lot of time and energy and, and money in the end up it reminds me of that old joke about going to the golf pro and you know taking a few swings he says oh you know what can you do he says well if i were you i'd cut a few inches off each of your golf clubs and he yeah. says, well why would you do that will that make me better he said no we'll make it easier to fit them in the bin yeah yeah so there is like those sort of simple things and one sort of last question do you enjoy golf now dan because it seems to me that you know whole heap of pressure money there's a certain amount of ambition there you know yeah. the place you want to go with that when you're standing there at a golf course in the summer in sweden do you enjoy the game i do um and that's that's something 
I worked out with my coach as well. He's like, you're playing a four-hour round. He was like, you have to enjoy it. Yeah. Um, he's like, when you hit that shot, just disconnect. You know, mm. golf course is amazing. You're getting out in great weather. You're out in the nature. Mm. You're, you're, you know, you're doing 10, 11 kilometers walk. Um, you know, you get great scenery. I mean, it's amazing. I, I, you know, when you go out and play at tournaments and you're like, I'd rather do this than sitting in an office eight hours a day. You know, you're out in the nature, the sun is shining. I mean, it's, there's worse places to be, you know. Yeah, the bunker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're on the beach, you know, you think about it that way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, the water is usually close yeah. by as well. Well, the best of luck with the season that's coming, Dad, and uh, we'll check back in with you at some point during the season to see how it's going for yeah. you. But for now, four. Cheers, Phil. There's a story about you uh, in Sweden that it. Yeah, there's the Scandinavian Masters plays at a place called Barsebak in the south of Sweden. And uh, I woke up one morning uh, with a, a tea time after lunch, but I woke up in Copenhagen. <laughs> which, uh, and this is the reason I always have uh, at least 600 bucks in my wallet, because it cost me $600 in a cab to get back to Sweden, and there was a ferry involved. Now, I, I woke up. I woke up that morning and wearing one sock, and there was a half-smoked uh, cigar in the bed, and I've never smoked. <laughs> the, the only way it could have been more eerie would uh, have been if there had been a hundred extra dollars in my wallet. <laughs> well, thank goodness there wasn't. Yeah. But you don't remember getting on a ferry at all? Uh, yeah, I, I got on... Well, no, I don't re remember uh, getting on the ferry to get there. I remember going back. I was panic-stricken. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. The great Irish golfer and raconteur, uh, David Ferty, speaking to Jimmy Fallon, I think it was. Um, Jeez, I met Ferdy about 30 years ago. He was always a hilarious man altogether. And I think he probably made more money doing TV uh, in America than he ever did playing golf. But a, a wonderful guy and uh, has since given up the drink. But I think, you know, when he was telling that story of uh, going out somewhere in southern Sweden and waking up in Copenhagen, there's probably one or two lads listening now might have done that in the past. But we'll say nothing. That's it for this week. Jesus, I'll tell you, it's getting longer and longer as the week goes on. One hour, 11 minutes and 47 seconds as I'm talking to you right here. But uh, actually, that's the way. If you're talking to interesting people, you don't want to be cutting them off now, do you? I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, oh, yeah, the one last little bit of sports news that we have this week. The Stockholm Gale soccer team got their league campaign underway this weekend. Didn't get off to a great start. Suffered a bit of a defeat there on Friday night in their first away game of the season. But that's grand. We'll sort those things out as we go along. And uh, we'll be hearing more from the lads, of course, throughout the season. And if you have anything to be telling us about I'm going to be trying to check in with the Spuds and Seal Theatre group very soon. I know Gothenburg Celtic are probably still on the go down there. I don't know if Adrian and the lads still have a soccer team down there. But whatever's going on in your part of the world, do let me know, as Noel Sheehy did, about the Gregory Satsulin group. And uh, more than happy to include those things. But uh, until next time, which will be next Monday morning, 7 o'clock, Kevin Carroll, don't worry, buddy, I won't let you down. Uh, take care of yourselves, take care of one another, and I'll be talking to you again very, very soon indeed. Mm -hmm.